Hi folks, Neil here. We want to help answer all your questions about London. That's why you can listen to this guide in the Circa app for iPhone and get all the show notes, pictures, maps, and links you need to find everything we tell you about in this London guide. Best of all, in the Circa app, you can message a Circa concierge. You can get any question about London answered by real people right here. The latest galleries, West End shows, how to do the big attractions right, how to use the tube, where to find an absolutely beautiful Sunday roast right now. We are giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, no AI ever. And for a limited time, it's completely free. The Circa Travel app is available in the App Store right now or at circatravel.com. Hi everyone, my name's Neil Innes. I'm one of the folks at Circa in charge of all of the amazing travel guides we're launching this summer. And I also host the Circa Guide to Barcelona from this beautiful city on the Mediterranean. We'd like to invite you to download the Circa app for iOS for free. It's out right now in the App Store. Inside the Circa app, you'll find maps and info on all the places we recommend, plus bonus episodes and early access to all of the other guides. Go to circatravel.com or click the link in the notes. Right now, you'll be able to listen to Circa Guide episodes about London, Barcelona, Los Angeles, Rome, and Iceland. And coming soon, Paris, Mexico City, Hawaii, Costa Rica, and more. Once more, that's circatravel.com, spelled C-E-R-C-A travel.com. I'll see you there. Welcome to Circa. In this episode, I'm going to tell you the story of one of the most memorable events in modern wartime history for the City of London, the Blitz. Hitler's massive bombing campaign hit many cities across Britain, but London was the primary target, and the capital's experience became the defining narrative of the period. Despite trying very hard to destroy the city and the morale of the people living through it, this crucial chapter in World War II proved that London's resilient spirit can conquer even in the darkest chapter. We're going to tell you about a lot of places but as always, don't worry, there will be maps, notes and info in the Circa Travel app. So sit back, put your headphones on and let me take you back to the unimaginable time that was World War II in London. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. It was a sunny Saturday afternoon in September in 1940, one year after British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain declared war on Germany and Hitler's Third Reich. Winston Churchill was now Britain's wartime leader. Londoners strolled through the city's main shopping precincts, Oxford Street, Regent Street, and the jam-packed thoroughfare of Piccadilly Circus. Unusually warm weather cast a relaxing balm over central London, soothing urban dwellers against the everyday realities of war. People sunbathed in parks and chatted on the sidewalk. Even though the city was at war, Hitler's forces had recently overtaken France and the Battle of Britain was being waged in the skies overhead. But London felt momentarily calm. It felt almost normal. The British Royal Navy, long a commanding power around the world, controlled the English Channel and the North Sea, which had made a seaborne attack for Hitler pretty much impossible. The Germans took to the skies instead, with a campaign aimed at destroying Britain's air defences. This aerial battle of Britain between Hitler's Luftwaffe and the Royal Air Force had been raging since July, nearly three months at this point. Germany believed that, if successful, they could then launch an invasion of Britain. 
By early September, however, the Battle of Britain was not going the Germans' way, and they turned to a bombing campaign of Britain's skies to try and break the will of the British people. Just before 5pm, on the 7th day of September, the sirens began wailing. A strange droning quickly turned into a roar. The sound rushed along the curves of the River Thames into central London. The bombers were coming. If you ask my 96-year-old grandma, who was 15 at the time, she'd say the city was in pretty good spirits at this point in the war. But September 7th was a before-and-after moment for everyone who lived through it and for the city of London itself. This day became known in the history books as Black Saturday. The Blitz is a name which comes from the German term Blitzkrieg, or Lightning War. After the occupation of France by Germany, Britain knew it was only a matter of time before this day would arrive. By 4.30 that afternoon, more than 300 German bombers and 617 fighter planes were making their way across the English Channel, with the direct target of London in their sights. They flew over Kent, known as the Garden of England, a pastoral countryside that stretches all the way to the White Cliffs of Dover and the English Channel. Witnesses enjoying afternoon tea in their gardens saw planes fly directly overhead. It was the biggest concentrated attack on any place in Europe since the Spanish Armada sailed for England 500 years before. By the way, while it doesn't go back as far in history as the Spanish Armada, there's a Dark City episode in our Barcelona guide all about the Spanish Civil War. You can find it in the Circa app. American newspaperman Ben Robertson watched the bombers as they flew at a very great height, glistening like beautiful steel birds in the afternoon sunshine. But by 5pm, London was burning. Around 1,000 bombs were dropped in that first attack. The intention was to cause the greatest amount of damage to the Royal Docks in East London. This is now better known as Canary Wharf and Docklands, a pristine financial district. In 1940, however, this was the biggest and most important port in the country. The city had a population of 9 million living in a 610 square mile space. No easy thing to defend given the city's size. The first bombs landed on the Ford Motorworks at Dagenham, closely followed by high explosives and firebombs on Beckton Gasworks. This was just the beginning. So now, let's take a walk through Churchill's London during the time of the Second World War and the Blitz to discover the places that survived and the buildings, landmarks, spaces and people forever altered by the most notorious attack on London during World War II. By the end of the war, German bombs would kill an estimated 29,000 Londoners, nearly 20,000 of them during the eight months of the Blitz. Many historians believe the numbers are far higher because a high level of censorship was insisted on by Churchill to keep the nation's morale up. Even so, against all odds and in the face of untold destruction and death, London came out fighting. To quote Churchill, London is like some huge prehistoric animal, capable of enduring terrible injuries, mangled and bleeding from many wounds, and yet preserving its life and movement. Somehow, the city of London, as the famous wartime posters commanded, kept calm and carried on. The East End and Black Saturday. London's East End and what's today known as the Docklands was once a bustling trading hub introduced by the Romans in the first century. The area became especially important in the late 1700s during the British Empire, when the city experienced mass expansion and global trading. The Port of London was a vital hub of wartime industry and for the German Third Reich, Disabling this part of the city would mean cutting off the lifeblood of London. 
So, that's where Hitler started. The German bomber crews even became familiar with the East End, referring to it as Target Area A. The Royal Docks and all of the East End factories of North Woolwich and Silvertown took the first hit. Many of the factory's worker houses got bombed too. This area of London housed many low-income labourers packed closely together. Massive columns of smoke rose hundreds of feet into the air, obscuring the sun and turning the sky a bright fuchsia pink. The first raid ended at ten past six. Two hours later, the horror began again with 300 more bombers flying in for another vicious attack. And this one didn't end until the early hours of the next morning. At the start of the Blitz, it was East London, the docks, and the areas around Bethnal Green, including Columbia Road, that bore the brunt of the destruction. The Docklands would never fully recover. Today, the East End's Columbia Road flower market is a beloved hangout. A stone's throw from the creative neighbourhood of Shoreditch, this buzzy road is host to a Sundays-only flower market and a hodgepodge of antique shops, interior design boutiques, and other lovely independent labels. Go on a Sunday, though, when it really comes alive for the market. On Columbia Road, elbow your way through every kind of flower, succulent, or foliage. A kaleidoscope of cool hunters all sipping on cold brew or craft beer will also catch your eye, probably picking blooms before brunch. A typical East London Sunday ritual. I go here for fresh tulips or hydrangeas if I'm feeling flush. Once you've treated yourself to some fresh cuts, go to the Birdcage, a restored Victorian gastropub. They have a great selection of beer, and if you're feeling peckish, they also whip up a decent Sunday roast. During the Blitz, this elegant Victorian street was anything but florals and flat whites. Columbia Road was actually home to a large designated air raid shelter under the Market Square. It was the size of about one and a half football pitches, separated by a wall, dividing it into two equal parts. On the first day of the Blitz, September the 7th, it was filled to the brim with 1,000 local families who'd fled down into the shelter after hearing the second wave of sirens go off close to sundown. By terrible luck, a German bomber released a 50-kilogram high-explosive bomb over the buildings beside the shelter. The bomb shot down the glass ventilation shaft and exploded amongst the families in the shelter, killing 45 people. It was one of the most devastating hits on any one neighbourhood. Seek out the old market square just off Columbia Road. Here you'll find a small manicured rose garden containing a plaque with the names of those who lost their lives. We're going to throw a lot of names and places at you, but don't worry. Check the notes in the Circa app and there you'll find lists, maps and itineraries, all the resources you need. Right around the corner from Columbia Road between Grove Road and Roman Road, another huge one-tonne bomb fell only hours later, carving out a crater in the road and destroying the majority of the houses between 150 and 176 Grove Road. Walking down the bustling Roman road today, it's hard to imagine that this lovely East End market was at the mercy of Hitler's Luftwaffe Air Force. Locals have been going down the Roman for over 150 years. It was also ground zero for suffragette activity earlier in the century, with demonstrations and rallies led by the likes of Sylvia Pankhurst advocating for votes for women. Today, this bustling market is a convergence of two tribes. The first kind, what you might call a stereotypical East Londoner, all rosy cheeks and gruff demeanour, and lots of Cockney rhyming slang. The second, an emerging hipster class of 30-somethings that have flocked here and aren't likely to bust out any Cockney. Even so, these tribes live in harmony. Cockney rhyming slang is a secret language invented by London's Cockney community. Geographically, a Cockney is someone born within the sound of the bells of Bow Church in the East End. 
The tradition started around the mid-19th century when criminals used it to try and confuse the police. It was also used by salesmen as a way of speaking beyond the understanding of their customers. For example, you might hear the phrase, use your loaf, which actually means to use your brain about something. Why? Because loaf of bread rhymes with use your head, which has morphed over the time into use your loaf. Use your loaf. Or the heading up the apples and pears means they're actually going up the stairs. Keep your ears open for this rhyming banter from the traders as you walk through the market. Also keep your eyes open for a select few ATMs around Roman Road that give you the option of selecting Cockney or English as your language of choice. Remember to enter your Huckleberry Finn, that's your pin, to get the cash out. Whilst you're here, grab a spicy hot onion bhaji to snack on from one of the street sellers as you hunt through racks of secondhand clothes or 80s memorabilia. Or hit G. Kelly at 526 Roman Road for a typical wartime street seller's lunch, pie, mash and liquor, which is actually code for parsley sauce. Then head to the Eleanor Arms, just off the market on Old Ford Road. It's a lovely family-run spot and perfect for an ale. Another place that's seen its fair share of wartime defiance is Spitalfields Market, also set in the multicultural East End. The market's been around since 1666 and was built by immigrant communities who fled here from their own conflict-riddled countries during the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. They brought skills, culture and all kinds of fabrics and goods with them. The French Huguenots with their silks, then the Irish weavers a little later in the 1700s. The Eastern European Jews arrived in the late 1880s, enriching Spitalfields even more. By 1970, 40 synagogues had popped up, not to mention some epic Jewish bakeries. The best of a brilliant bunch is Bagel Bake, by the way, on Brick Lane. If the queues are anything to go by, it's the finest salt beef bagel this side of New York City. Back in the market, you'll stumble on a whole medley of arts, crafts, clothing, artwork, and artisanal jewellery. Spitalfields is flanked by many elegant boutiques and delis. It's the conflux of cultures and communities that this area is known for. You've got the financial epicentre that's Moorgate and Liverpool Street just west of the market, then a thriving Bangladeshi community that stretches east of Spitalfields and down towards Whitechapel. This patch has its own fiery reputation for being a top spot for a Ruby Murray. That's Cockney for curry. Back in the time of Churchill's London, there were no gourmet bagels and curry. Adults often got by on a weekly ration that went something like this. Bacon and ham, four ounces. Butter, two ounces. Cheese, two ounces. Margarine, four ounces. Cooking fat, four ounces. Milk, three pints, and sugar, eight ounces, if you were lucky. It was also common practice to use all the public parks and allotments to grow your own vegetables in times of harsh rationing. During a campaign called Dig for Victory from Britain's Ministry of Agriculture, most city parks were transformed by local residents into pop-up veggie patches. Even the lawns beside the Tower of London got turned into lettuce beds. Funnily enough, beer wasn't rationed. But people got by. Community and a collective spirit of resilience helped the city endure. And London's mental and physical health remained surprisingly good, although there's speculation that this view of history might be based on propaganda, which hid the actual numbers of deaths and the full extent of the destruction. But either way, Londoners rolled up their sleeves and got on with it. There's a story I've always heard that's a great example of this. It's about a local hero called Mickey. Mickey lived on Commercial Road with his wife, Doris. He was an optician and a popular member of the community. His practice was bombed out, and during the raids that followed, he and wife Doris sheltered inside the disused Spitalfields Fruit and Wool Exchange in nearby Brushfield Street. But the conditions and the heat were unbearable and chaotic. Mickey stepped up and created a new vision for wartime shelters in the East End. He was only three feet, six inches tall, and actually he was known as the midget. But it was clear that he had a heart of a giant. He led efforts to set up first aid and medical units and raise money for the dispensary. 
He persuaded stretcher bearers and other helpers to come in and support the shelter off-duty, and even got the food retailer Marks & Spencers to provide food for a canteen on-site. Pretty quickly, Mickey became known as a social activist, pushing authorities to take action for poor EastEnders who didn't have the luxury of escaping the city or hiding in the basement of posh hotels like the Savoy, the Ritz or the Dorchester, something only wealthy Londoners or hotel guests were permitted to do. Yep, wartime highlighted London's class divide. The city's top hotels during the Blitz became a symbol of unwavering, guarded privilege. An unofficial nickname emerged, the Ritzkrieg. London's wealthy population held clandestine blackout balls in the hotel ballrooms and enjoyed raging bars in the basement that were bursting with the privileged elite during cocktail hour. London's upper class weren't prepared to sacrifice their fun or their pink G&Ts just because there was a war on. Besides the secret debauchery, most of these hotels attracted revellers because their solid structures also made them genuinely good options for when the sirens went off. For London's Dorchester Hotel, foundations of reinforced concrete gave residents reassurance, while the five-star Ritz over in Piccadilly, today considered one of the world's most luxurious hotels, had concealed steel girders, which were ironically of German origin. Battle of Britain Day on the 15th of September, 1940. Only a few hours past, it is reported this morning that German bombers and fighting planes are again over southeast British coastal towns. On British Sunday, September the 15th, 1940, the Luftwaffe launched a double blow daytime attack on London. They wanted to coax Britain's RAF, the Royal Air Force, into a battle of annihilation. Two large raids took place involving 1,100 German aircraft. They were countered by over 600 British fighters. The first wave of 250 German bombers with 300 fighter escorts flew over the English Channel around mid-morning, and the second group, of similar strength, started making their way over the coast around 2 p.m. British intelligence believed they were heading for the Thames, including the warehouses in the East End and the Surrey commercial docks, as well as many other docks south of the river. These were called choke points to the enemy. By striking these vital trade locations, the Germans hoped to force the RAF into a decisive air battle that would allow them to destroy the remaining British fighter forces. But on this fateful day, the Luftwaffe misjudged the strength of the RAF. They'd been led to believe it was on its knees, and in fact, the opposite was true. Uh, hello, Mitch Gunner. Did you recognize that fighter you shot on? No, I didn't recognize it, but it's definitely going down now. Good, Jimmy, I can see yeah. it, boy. Good show. Great Britain's fighter pilots were rested, revived, and ready to battle. That day, Britain's pilots managed to scatter many of the German bomber formations and shot around 60 German planes out of the sky. The German pilots were derailed by this point, so they randomly dropped bombs as they flew over Westminster and then down towards Crystal Palace and Tooting, south of the river. By the way, in 2016, a couple living in Crystal Palace found an unexploded German incendiary bomb in their basement late at night. They held off calling the police till the next day because they didn't want to wake the neighbours. Keep calm and carry on. As the battle raged over London, few knew this would be the climax of the German campaign to destroy the British Royal Air Force. As a decisive turning point, this day would come to be known and commemorated as Battle of Britain Day. It was also the final daytime raid, after which the German high command were convinced that they couldn't gain air supremacy over the British. From this moment, Germany turned its focus primarily to night raids across Britain. Today, 
you can relive the full Air Force experience at the RAF Museum in Edgware, North London. Climb inside a Spitfire MK-16 and discover how it feels to sit in the pilot seat of this iconic aircraft, or jump into one of the museum's simulator zones, which includes a 4D ride with the Red Arrows Formation Flying Team. Despite the strength of the RAF and its defeat of the Germans during that last daytime raid, the nighttime horrors of the Blitz were far from over. Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Satan's Night, the 15th of November, 1940. Behind the scenes, the Germans were constantly improving their weaponry. And on this particular eve in mid-November, they gave London a fresh surprise, a terrible new type of bomb. Londoners nicknamed it Satan. It was a giant, nearly 4,000 pounds with a clockwork time delay mechanism. Pretty much every borough in the city got bombed with this deadly new invention. But even though the Germans dropped over 24,000 tonnes of bombs during the war, including many Satans, about 10% of them didn't detonate. In recent years, many have been found accidentally by construction workers. Removing and detonating them is a risky job. Since 2010, the Ministry of Defence has been involved in making safe hundreds of German World War II bombs found underneath London's streets. On the night of the 15th of November, major weapons of war got dropped on some of central London's greatest landmarks, the National Portrait Gallery and Euston Station, all in the city of Westminster. Basically, right in the epicentre of London's West End, just off Trafalgar Square and the Strand. The National Portrait Gallery was hit twice that night. Two large bombs dropped on this well-loved gallery in St Martin's Place. The first one smashed into a staircase and the second dropped into a courtyard near the bedroom of the gallery's creative director, Henry Hake. Somehow, nobody died. A year before, the owners of the gallery had been instructed by the Home Office to move the most important collections out. They were stored for a time at an aristocrat's estate in Buckinghamshire. But in August 1940, six bombs rained down on the grounds of this same estate, well before the Blitz actually even began in London. A coincidence? Who knows? Luckily, no portraits or people were harmed. Today, the National Portrait Gallery, just off Trafalgar Square, is a must-visit. It holds the most extensive collection of portraits in the world. From 17th-century aristocracy to modern-day iconic stars, this elegant, light-filled building is a lovely place to get lost in for an hour or two. Also, don't miss the restaurant on the top floor. The views of all the London rooftops in Trafalgar Square make you feel a bit like Mary Poppins, floating around on the chimney tops. And the food is mod British, with gorgeous seasonal ingredients. A couple of miles due north of Trafalgar Square, you'll find Euston Station. This was an important transportation hub for women and children being evacuated to the countryside during the war, and for soldiers catching trains to various postings. In early September 1939, as war was being declared, a three-day period saw one and a half million people, including 827,000 school-aged children, 
evacuated from urban centres to rural accommodation in preparation for the horrors of urban bombing. Like other London mainline stations, Euston was fraught with emotion and anxiety. Soldiers with their heads out of windows, lovers kissing goodbye, kids balancing gas masks on top of lunchboxes, everyday scenes of wartime. On the day of the bombings, part of the station's Great Hall roof was destroyed, shrapnel raining down on platforms two and three. In the surrounds of the station were marshalling yards or areas of railway sidings where all the city's essential goods were loaded onto railway carriages. Food, hospital equipment, munitions, coal. It wasn't a great place to live close to. These sidings and busy stations in general were a prime target for German bombers. Below the city streets, the London Underground's labyrinthine tube tunnels also sheltered over 177,000 Londoners during the Blitz. Some tube stations provided bunk beds, stoves, toilets and food trains, with the elevators being used as washing areas and toilets. Because of the depth of the tunnels, they provided a greater kind of safety than the flimsy corrugated iron Anderson shelters that many families assembled in their own gardens. Today, it's well known that underneath parts of London, there's a vast network of eight large, deep level shelters, as well as many abandoned chambers, stations and tunnels that have existed here since they were hurriedly built under Churchill's orders in World War II. Waterloo Station on the south side of the River Thames is one such spot. Underneath this major bustling transport hub, there's actually a disused pedestrian walkway and abandoned typewriting offices where former wartime staff would tap away as the sirens sounded overhead. Anyone who's gone down here in recent years, because it's not technically open to the public, and surveyed the old dusty billiards table, the boarded up bunkers, usually describes it with one word. Creepy. the 29th of December, in St Paul's Cathedral. Little known fact, there were actually two Great Fires that torched London. The official Great Fire of London happened in 1666, but for survivors of the Blitz, the 29th of December was the second night that London became a raging inferno. It's now the fourth month of the Blitz, and over 100,000 incendiary firebombs fall on the city in one night. These small explosives were handed out to every Luftwaffe bomber pilot like candy. This particular raid, on the 114th night of the Blitz, focused on churches, offices and warehouses. The intention was to start as many fires as possible. And unfortunately for the city, the primary water main in London was already bomb fractured from previous raids. The City of London and its firefighters had the odds stacked against them that night. Sam Chauveau, one of the London Fire Brigade firefighters, described the scene that faced him and his comrades that night. By the time we finished tackling the fires on the roof of the London Stock Exchange, the sky, which was ebony black when we first got up there, was now changing to a yellowy-orange colour, it looked like there was an enormous circle of fire, including St Paul's Churchyard. St Paul's Cathedral. Designed by the late acclaimed British architect Sir Christopher Wren, this Anglican cathedral is one of London's most iconic buildings and attracts over two million visitors each year. On the night of the 29th, it was right in the line of fire for the Luftwaffe. Some 29 incendiary firebombs smashed down on the structure. Hundreds more pounded the surrounding streets and buildings that flanked the north bank of the River Thames. Hundreds of feet of billowing, swirling pink clouds shrouded the city of Westminster. Everything around the cathedral seemed to be destroyed or on fire. By some miracle, the dome and the main cathedral remained intact, Churchill sent an urgent message to a special group of firewatchers to protect the cathedral at all costs. One bomb dropped on the dome and threatened to fall into the cathedral's wooden support beams. By pure luck, it rolled down the roof onto the stone gallery 
the first of two galleries that encircled the base of the dome. It was quickly extinguished by the fire watchers. That same night, Herbert Mason, a photographer from the Daily Mail, was standing on top of the newspaper's headquarters on Tudor Street, near Fleet Street. The photograph he took, titled St Paul's Survives, has become a symbol of British resilience and courage and is considered one of the most iconic images of the Blitz. Let's go and take a look at St Paul's up close. It's quite something to look up inside and marvel at the dome that almost didn't make it. By the way, this dome, along with the Pantheon in Rome, is one of the tallest in the world. Adults can enter here for £17 and kids for less than half that. And if you'd rather not get lost in the noisy babble of voices at the Whispering Gallery and do the top golden gallery in peace, go super early, in the morning, right after it opens. Lesser known, but quite startling to look at, is the bombed-out shell that was Christchurch Newgate Street on the northern side of St Paul's, just one block away. This 18th-century religious building was totally gutted by the German bombers during the Blitz, but the remains surround a simple yet beautiful garden oasis. It's one of London's few large bomb sites to not be radically redeveloped over the years, and now it's best known as Christchurch Greyfriars Church Garden and a place for city workers to come with their sandwiches and a slice of peace at lunchtime. The hardest night, the 10th and the 11th of May, 1941. After eight months of nighttime raids, the spring of 1941 saw Hitler move forward on his plan to attack the Soviet Union and parts of the Mediterranean. But he wasn't finished with Britain just yet. On the night of the 10th of May, 1941, the moon was full and the Thames at an unusually low tide. This low tide proved to be terrible luck. It prevented firefighters from gathering a much-needed water supply as hundreds of tonnes of firebombs fell. Between 11.02pm and 5.57am, the Germans delivered the single most horrific raid of its lightning war on London. One of the hardest-hit spots in the East End was Smithfields Market, due north of St Paul's Cathedral. Smithfields was Europe's largest wholesale meat market. Today, it's a fully restored, thriving spot that supplies the city's highest Michelin-starred restaurants. It's rumoured that the Queen's personal chef also places his orders here. The history of Smithfields has a murky side well before the terror of World War II. Before it became a trading space, the 12th century saw it used for jousting and tournaments, but by the 13th century, its recreational status took a grisly turn. It had become a place for hangings and torture. Remember Mel Gibson's role in Braveheart, the freedom fighter and political rebel, Sir William Wallace? Yep, the real William Wallace was hanged here. But on the 10th of May, 1941, the grade two listed covered market building was right in the firing line of Hitler's bombers. These cruel, wanton, indiscriminate bombings of London are, of course, a part of Hitler's invasion plan. East of Smithfields is the Museum of London. It's laid out with different areas that capture key chapters of the city's history before it even became London, in pre-Roman times that go back as far as 450,000 BC. To better understand the Blitz, go here for rare artefacts from the Second World War, including paintings and sketches of Londoners sheltering in the underground stations during air raids. Of these images, Bill Brandt's photographs and Henry Moore's drawings are perhaps the most famous. Little does he know the spirit of the British nation or the tough fibre of the Londoners whose forebears played a leading part in the establishment of Parliament. Westminster Abbey is maybe one of the most iconic religious and political buildings on earth. It's hosted many royal coronations and state funerals, including Princess Diana's. It's also been the location for over 17 royal weddings, including the 2011 marriage of Princess Diana's son, Prince William, 
to Kate Middleton, now the Duchess of Cambridge. Technically, it's not an abbey any longer because no monks or nuns live here. But it's been a working facility for religious events and ceremonies since the 10th century. Yeah, it's that old. So old, in fact, it's home to the only surviving Anglo-Saxon door in the UK, which dates from around 1050. Recent dendrochronological, that's tree ring dating analysis, has revealed the boards were cut from a single tree from Hainault Forest to the northeast of London. Go to marvel at the Abbey's majestic, high-sweeping Romanesque buildings, constructed in this style to honour St. Peter the Apostle. Since then, it's had a couple of Gothic architectural facelifts, but you can still see the original arches and also the original monks' quarters. On the night of May the 10th in 1941, the Abbey, like the rest of London, wasn't prepared for what happened next. The centre of the roof fell in, and the dean of the abbey reported that the main fabric was intact, but the pulpit was largely destroyed. It was mainly due to the bravery of the firefighters that night that the most historic parts of the abbey were left uninjured. But the deanery itself was gutted by fire, and three clergy houses in the cloisters were also destroyed. Across the road, in the Houses of Commons, bombs smashed down on the debate chamber and the roof of the members' lobby, which had already been hit in previous raids, Doors fell off and a large fire began raging near Oliver Cromwell's statue. At one point, onlookers thought the city's most iconic clock, Big Ben, had become another victim of the raid. But despite its four faces being blackened by soot, it still managed to tell the time. In fact, it never missed a beat during the whole of the Blitz. On this most harrowing eve of war, the fires resulted in 700 acres of destruction, which was actually double that of the original Fire of London in 1666. The British Museum in central London's literary neighbourhood Bloomsbury also got badly bombed that night. This phenomenal museum, the oldest public museum in the world, is home to eight million artistic, cultural and political artefacts collected from all over the planet. It's one of the biggest collections of man-made artefacts in existence. Many of London's bigger museums and art galleries had already relocated their most valuable artefacts a year earlier, when then Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain announced that Britain was at war, and at around the same time as the mass evacuation of millions of civilians and children. The British Museum was no exception. Hundreds of thousands of precious artefacts got wrapped up and deposited inside abandoned tube stations, country houses, and purpose-built bunkers. Their efforts made it the biggest mass evacuation of artefacts in any museum's history, ever. In just eight days, they moved 100 tonnes of objects, from Ice Age mammoth ivory sculptures to original drawings from Michelangelo, it all got packed up and evacuated. The heaviest sculptures were housed in the Oldwich Tube Tunnel on the Piccadilly Line. This station was closed in 1994, though, and is today known as one of London's abandoned ghost stations. On the hardest night, the incendiary raid caused fires to start in the museum and consume some 250,000 books. The water from the fire hoses ruined most of those that survived the flames. But despite this loss, you'll still be spellbound by the amount of ancient wonders that can be viewed and interacted with here. Check out the Rosetta Stone, the key that unlocked ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. Crouching Venus, a precious Roman sculpture from the 2nd century AD. And my favourite, a bright blue Aztec serpent from Mexico that dates back to the 1400s. Entrance is free, much like most of the city's brilliant museums. It's down to a 20-year pledge made by the UK government to make British heritage and culture free for everyone. Yes, that includes you. If you head over to the London Metropolitan Archives in the city's east-central neighbourhood of Clerkenwell, you'll have access to some incredibly well-preserved, hand-coloured bomb damage maps. Today, these maps are still a trusted resource for academics, 
family historians and even builders trying to avoid setting off unexploded bombs. These maps depict colour-coded levels of destruction based on the type of bomb used throughout the attacks and how almost 50 different high explosives showered down on these very North London streets. One particular spot was one of the country's highest security prisons, HMP Pentonville Prison on the Caledonian Road. The sea wing of the prison was hit by a series of bombs that reduced the four-storey building to rubble and killed 13 people. It was closed after the bombing and didn't reopen until 1946. The wing was eventually rebuilt to three storeys in 1958 and became the prison's education block. The Caledonian Road is known historically as a part of London that's been a home for institutional power and disciplinary facilities. There was also a creepy asylum here in the late 1800s, but it was moved. And Europe's largest female prison, Holloway Prison, was here until it closed in 2016. Despite the area's unnerving legacy, this part of London today is a multicultural melting pot of students, Bangladeshis, Ethiopians and other ethnicities, while Cali Road, as the Caledonian Road is known by locals, has some lovely secrets worth coming here for. Make sure you visit Houseman's, a radical, not-for-profit bookstore. Since it opened in 1945, it's amassed the biggest collection of radical pamphlets, newsletters and zines in the country. Follow up your browsing with a visit to Large Glass, a contemporary art gallery named in the spirit of French Cubist painter Marcel Duchamp. It's not what you'd expect to find in this neighbourhood, but it's a hidden gem. Reliving wartime today, the RAF Museum and the Imperial War Museum. While I've just given you a pretty good tour of the real-life London landmarks touched by the Blitz, there are some standout experiences that London has preserved to keep the history of World War II available for everyone. If this time period is your cup of tea, here's what I would point you to. Let's start with the Imperial War Museum, south of the Thames in Lambeth. As you walk up the main entrance, this impressive building is flanked by two massive naval guns from the World War I-era ships. The museum is a marvel, with Spitfire planes, other aircraft and rockets greeting you in the main atrium. It also has loads of galleries to explore, recreations of the soldiers' World War I trenches, as well as the Blitz experience, an interactive exhibit in the museum's World War II gallery. Make sure you visit the Holocaust galleries too. Entry is free. Another must-do is Churchill's War Rooms, over in Westminster, on the southeast corner of St James's Park. It's located in the top-secret underground bunker that Churchill and his war cabinet used in preparation for the war. Wind your way down through the corridors and get up close to the cabinet room, where the Prime Minister made his big decisions about World War II. See Churchill's small private bedroom and the phone from which he spoke to FDR in the days before the United States entered the fray. And don't miss the map room too, a 24-7 hub of intelligence from the armed forces where troop movements were tracked. Adult entry is around £25 and kids between 5 to 15 years get in for half price. Since you're already in Westminster, don't miss a little detour by Lord North Street, which is a short hop from the Houses of Parliament. It's an unassuming street, but number eight has something worth looking out for. A white painted arrow on the home's black brick frontage, pointing to a community air raid shelter in the basement. It's one of the last original ones in the city. And even though it's someone's home now, they've left the sign there. Perhaps to remind modern Londoners of the city's tumultuous past and its resilient character. After what seemed like an endless nightmare of relentless bombing, on May the 11th, 1941, the Luftwaffe finally admitted defeat against Britain's Royal Air Force. The night raids were finally over. Londoners took a breath. 
and the hundreds of thousands that had their homes destroyed rolled up their sleeves and got to work rebuilding the City of London. Londoners endured. Children played in the foundations of demolished buildings. Blitz Church masonry was pulled out of the rubble by eager workmen and repurposed into rebuilding something new. Cricket games were seen taking place in bombed-out buildings and flower gardens were created out of debris left on the ground. The war was far from over, but the spirits of the city soared as the horror of the Blitz began to dim. A propaganda film was made shortly after to capture the determination and courage of the people in the city. It was called London Can Take It, and it did, right up until the war ended in 1945. We hope the story of the Blitz shone a light on how this pivotal piece of London history can still be experienced as you wander through the city. Remember to check out the other episodes in this guide for deeper dives into London's food, fashion and much more. Whether you're heading to London right now, sometime in the near future, or you'd just like to learn all about a place I truly love, you'll get instant access to the full guide, plus new episodes on a regular basis when you subscribe to Circa. For pictures, maps, and notes on all the places in this episode, download the Circa app. Maybe you'll want to check out our other guides for Rome, Costa Rica, Iceland, Barcelona, and many more to come. Circa. Love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.